Good morning, and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court and family court issues. Right now, I've got a really very interesting guest. She's been around. Uh, her name is Dawn McCarty. She's an adult survivor of abandonment, parental abduction, and severe parental alienation. Today, she is the CEO of Securing Everything, the chair for the National Parents Organization of Florida, an associate producer of the hit documentary film called Erasing Family, and the co-founder and host of the Humanly Possible channel. And uh, I want to say, good morning, Dawn. It's really early. <laughs> good morning. Good morning, Mar Marianne. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad you're on. We have a lot to talk about. And, uh, you know, uh, we're talking here about what happens in cases of parental alienation mm -hmm. and what can maybe be avoided. Yeah, exactly. There's so many, there's so many things that I think are overlooked, not even considered or even discussed about what the children go through. So I, I kind of come with the child's perspective and sharing my experiences so that the powers that be, the people that make the laws, the people that enforce the laws, the people that you know, evaluate the, you know, the mind of a child or what the parents, you know, what their situations may or may not be. You know, maybe there is a personality disorder, maybe there's not, but what's not being really evaluated is the actual voice of the child and the ones that actually have that lived experience. Mm -hmm. So I start off by sharing my story and explaining what those long-term effects really have been for me and what has created difficulty in my life where, where most children would thrive. I had to sacrifice. I had to grieve. I had to overcome. I had to learn how at a later stage in life rather than as I was growing up, where most children learn how to deal with things such as conflict and, you know, those, those emotional things. So emotional trauma kind of paralyzes you and you don't develop the, the appropriately how you should so that when you do become an adult, you're at the best possible position to go forward and to be an upstanding citizen, not saying that we're not, but so that you can be a strong um, parent, you can be a good parent, you can provide for your children, you can be a good partner, you can be stable, you can have all kinds of things that we should normally have based off of what we were taught as children, because we are a product of what we're taught. So when we get into adulthood and we haven't learned a lot of these things because we've learned mostly about emotional trauma and how to respect and disregard other people and other people's feelings and to cut out entire sides of families, that is what we're being taught. And that means that we're damaging that connection, the very fiber of our bonding with parents and with extended families. Do you think uh, the courts encourage this behavior <clears throat> of the alienating parent? I think that they just don't have a clue. I don't think that they would sit there and say, well, I want to, I, I want to continue or perpetuate this attitude. I think that they just have no idea what those long-term effects are because like in our film, Erasing Family, we, the, one of the judges was interviewed and he said, once he's made the final ruling, they don't ever go back and check to make sure that they did it right. They have no idea if they did it right or if they did it wrong. The only time they ever hear again is if they end up back in their court. So they're going off of making a decision based on what was actually in the courtroom at the time. And they made a decision based off of that. But our lives are very dynamic. You know, we're not, um, static in, in personality. We don't have this um, stagnant kind of um, position when you go through certain events like this where things are constantly changing. The variables can throw something into a totally different path than what, what was happening when they actually were in court the first time. 
So, and that could be jobs changing. That could be, you know, having to move from one city to another city. That could be, you know, maybe, um, you know, the, the jobs being lost even this, this time of year, this, this year especially, we've had so many obstacles that have changed even just being able to see your child because of this pandemic. And that's thrown a wrench into things. So mm-hmm. a judge is making a decision for the long-term outcome, but it's never appropriate for the long-term outcome because they're not considering the variables. I know there are people out there trying to educate the judges on parental alienation and personality disorders and narcissism. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how far they're getting with these judges or not. I don't know if you know. Well, it's, a, it's very time-consuming. We have to be able to have them as a captive audience. Um, we're educating as best we can and as frequent as we can. So we take, like, for example, I've taken the, the Erasing Family documentary and have screened it through areas throughout my state. And I got, you know, sponsored it with, um, or kind of partnered it with my NPO chair position where I am trying to change how the state laws affect children when, they, when there's a divorce, a high conflict divorce. So we've gotten some traction, but we really need the grassroots to kind of help when it comes to, especially judges that are elected. If they're not elected, they don't have any, any skin in the game as far as making sure that the voters are happy. If they are an elected judge, then that's where the grassroots can come in and they can say, listen, we support shared parenting. We want you to as well. And then they have to have that accountability. So it's going to take a pretty large, massive movement to get in, you know, to penetrate into the court systems deep enough. So I think what's probably more effective is educating people and getting the word around so that friends and family can say, ah, I recognize that. I know a friend that has gone through that. Or my friend's parents are going through that. And they can start seeing this and maybe start saying something. So if you see something, say something. That's the, that's kind of goes across all kinds of venues here where if you see something, say something because the, the children, their lives really depend on this. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they think it doesn't really affect me. I could care less. But deep down inside, that's not true. They know it and I know it. It is it is definitely affecting them and it's changing the course of their lives. So what could have been is no longer even valid. So what are you actually missing out on? You think, you know, some of us think, okay, well, I'm fine right now. I I have this, I have that and I'm good. But what could it have been if you were just aware of the long-term effects of of what's going on with this high divorce? So, it is important to educate the judges, and it also is important to educate the attorneys, but we're, that's a really, really big beast um, to fight alone. So we have to congregate together. We have to start working together, and everybody has different skill sets, different things to offer. So the more of us that are out here talking, like slamming the gavel, like you're doing here, this is a great way to spread awareness and get people motivated so that they can help join in this, in this movement, in this, this fight. Right. Because I sent a letter of intent to a judge and he would not want to, he just did not want to speak to me at all. And I even put in the letter, I just want 10 minutes of your time because I know you're busy, just 10 minutes. And I just want to talk to you about you know, parental alienation, the effects it will have on the child, and that it will destroy six future generations. I think it was Dr. Mark Roseman that said that. Yeah. And they don't realize, or maybe they just don't care. The part that scares me is they don't care because when they get elected, their friends are electing them. They're- yeah, yeah, that's part of the problem too, is there's this network of... Um, you know, they're in their, they're in each other's back pockets more or less. But I think, I think we have to start talking to them in, um, yeah, they're, they're the honorable judge, right? I'm not in his courtroom at the moment. What I'd like to say is 
I want to talk to you about your grand, your grandchildren. I want to talk about, I want to talk to you about how your grandchildren could be cut out of your life. I want to, you know, make it personal. It needs to be personal for the judge because when it starts affecting him, he's going to listen. When well, we can get that, if we can get that front row seat and get his undivided attention, it's got to be personal. Right. Did you know that out of the people in the United States, 25 million parents are being erased from their children's lives? Did you know that that percentage could actually affect you as a judge? That you hmm. could actually miss out on your grandchildren, your great grandchildren. They could be totally removed from your presence simply because you didn't agree or you were on the wrong side. Right. Or, you know, their kids could grow up and marry someone who is an alienator who says, gee, I don't like your dad. Mm -hmm. And then start. You're no longer allowed to talk to your own child. Yeah. And just, and just brainwash their son or daughter against them. And then they won't see their kids. Yeah. Their this grandkids. can literally touch anybody. So when we go to the court or we go to the judge, we go to an attorney and we talk to them about other people's problems they just lop that into the pile of other people's problems. And it's not important. What makes it important is when you personalize it for them and the, the chances that they too could be affected. See, I don't know if they, I think these judges think they are completely untouchable because they have so they much are, They might be untouchable as far as us making them do something, but they're not untouchable with this epidemic that they too, they, nobody is above this. There's no bias, there's no prejudice when it comes to who can be alienated from their child and or grandchildren. Grandparents grieve all the time because they cannot see their, their children because there's a rift between their child and, and that family dynamic. You know, maybe it is the spouse, the partner coming in that doesn't like how, you know, the, the stepmom or how what their family belief systems are and they more or less kind of remove the family out they they segregate or they start to isolate the the person from their own parents that can happen to anybody mm -hmm. a judge it can happen to anybody there is no no way to stop it the only way to stop it is to not get married <laughs> Yes. And that also brings me to what I had said before, and I hate it to sound like a horrible, rotten person, but, you know, marriage, uh, but it's really not safe to bring a baby into this world anymore when we have CPS so ready and willing to take a child away based on false allegations. And that's the thing is, you know, I have degrees in criminal justice. I have a bachelor's degree and I have a master's degree. And I, I want to see the facts. So I don't understand when I hear these false allegations, when I hear that silver, silver bullet, I don't care if you're in a family court or if you're in a criminal court, the family court is not capable of dealing with criminal cr or crimes. So why are we even talking about it in a family courtroom? They are not, it's not appropriate for that to be in that courtroom. And it's not appropriate for not, it not to move into a criminal court. The family court should be transferring that, saying that needs to go to criminal court, come back to me when you're done. Let that play out. Let it figure out where the, the, the chips lie and then come back to family court. That's where that system is broken because there has to be evidence that the sitting judge in a family courtroom cannot use that information to make his ruling if it has not been fettered out in a criminal court of law, period. There's no question about that. And every single judge and attorney listening to me knows that that's true. Right. I mean, like, well, in my case, even though I was cleared and exonerated of emotional abuse charges, the family court judge didn't care. He still rolled as if I was emotionally abusive. And that's why there needs to be accountability there, where he has to be accountable for his decisions based off of evidence that he has to, he should be adhering to that. If you've been exonerated, then he has to change his, he can't have that bias. Oh, he sure did. A judge cannot say, I don't like you because you didn't dress up good enough for my courtroom today. So I'm going to slam you. I'm going to slam the gavel against you. That's just not right.
There was so much, as you know, my case, there was so much not right with my case because right. the opposing attorney and the judge mm -hmm. were friends for a long period of time. So as you know, I could have walked in there with a Hollywood team of attorneys. And, and still that would be a conflict of interest. Oh, know? we tried. We tried recusing. At, no, he wouldn't do it. This. Well, we know the recusing process is flawed itself because right. you have to ask to recuse this judge, but the judge himself. And of course, he's not going to recuse himself. And there's no, there's no governing over that to make sure that he is making the appropriate uh, the decision there. Right. And that's why I was, you know, going on about video cameras and tamper-proof mics in the courtrooms. That would because, right, because when Congress installed family court in 1962 without the public's okay or knowledge of it, I think we went from civil court into a family court. And now, it, I don't think there's any way of fixing it because you would have to repeal what Congress installed, the family court system, and now it's making so much money they're not going to billion dollar a year industry right now in the United States, 50 billion. And there's no incentive for them to change anything because the, you know, they're in each other's pockets and we have to pay. If we want to file that motion, we have to pay. If we want to dissolve our marriage, we have to pay. If we want to modify the child custody arrangement, or if we want to change the amount of money that we're paying for child support, everything costs. And, but if you, if you take all of that and show the judge that this is, this is what's happening, he's not going to care because he doesn't see that side. And if he does see it, he, you know, it's just the system. It's always just the system and it's the system that's flawed. It's so flawed. I would like to see the abolishment of CPS title four B D and E because it's total destruction on humanity. Now I went and I became a guardian ad litem so that I could understand a little bit more about the system because coming from the child's point of view, I felt like my, um, my services would be better suited for seeing how it's actually playing out today in the life of a child. So I became a guardian ad litem for the state of Florida and I um, have some of the cases have been pretty decent cases and then there's been one that's been horrifying and I never thought that I would actually see that myself with my own two eyes on my own case and it's disturbing and it's unacceptable because there's the reasons why a parent was separated from her children were petty. Mm -hmm. And, and they, they hold on to these ideas about, you know, well, there's this, this is that, or she's lying. It's, to me, it's like facts. Give me the facts. Show me the facts. What facts do you have that shows she's lying? And I had the facts. I had a copy of it in my hands, and they didn't know it. They didn't know that that even existed, and they couldn't speak to it. And that is another flawed system where I, I shouldn't be telling them that something occurred they should already know that so it felt like a setup that's not right it's not right uh-huh that must have been so frustrating oh it was oh uh -huh. I, it was more than frustrating because i mean i've i've actually bursted out in our phone uh, meetings you know we had to do the the everything by phone or by chat or by zoom and there was times where I was intentionally left out of the meeting, but somebody sent me the information to call into the meeting. And then they didn't know I was actually on the call and I had to stop the person that was talking from finishing what she was saying because everything was just agreeing with CPS. And I, I was like, my whole position is I'm not here to agree with CPS. Right. I'm here to speak for these children. And what I see is this is wrong. What you're doing to these kids is wrong. So it kind of snowballed into a, well, maybe we might have to like remove you from this case. Yeah. Okay. Because they weren't getting what they wanted they to hear out it. of you. Yep. 
And it wasn't until after I stood my ground and I, I wrote a letter to them and I'm like, look, this is what happened. And I said, you don't have this, but I do. And here's the proof. You didn't have this. I do. And here's the proof. This is what I said against what you've been told. But why would I do that? So now all of a sudden CPS started being friendly to the, the parent, started talking nicer. I mean, they were so viciously rude. Oh to her like she was just not even the scum of the earth it was just horrific the way she was being treated as an individual as a person who was trying so hard i've never seen a parent try harder than this one this one tried so hard she got all of her work done in six months and they drug it out another six months because they could because they want the money right and, and that further alienate yeah, and that further alienates the child. So, and I've actually witnessed the um, caregivers that were taking care of these kids. I've actually witnessed them alienating the children against their parent. Oh, my God. Right in front of my face. I've actually heard them say things that, had I not known this, I wouldn't have even known that that's what they were doing. But that's exactly what they were doing. So now there's this big rift between one of the children and the mom. It's really bad. It's really bad. And then I'm only in dependency court. This wasn't even family law. This is a dependency case. That's pretty bad. I, you wonder what is wrong with people that they would do that? Well, I, I, think that for the most part, some of these, and I'm saying some of these people believe that they're doing their job and this is what they've been instructed to do and they're doing their job well. But they hadn't stopped to think of, should I be doing this this way? And they, I wonder if any of them think, if this was happening to me, would this be how I would want to be treated? Because I think we, we dehumanize people that are flawed. We all of a sudden think, well, you made a mistake or you left the marriage, or you um, were in a domestic violence situation, so you're now dehumanized, and we don't really acknowledge that you deserve respect, or that you deserve any kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, unconditional positive regard, where everybody deserves to have some respect, and yes, some people do need help, and then of course, there are cases that are just terrible cases and that some parents just aren't good parents. Right. But for the right. most part, a lot of these parents do try and they're trapped in this system mm -hmm. and all they, you know, they've made some mistakes, but what parent hasn't, I, mm -hmm. I'd like to see any one of the CPS people that, you know, step forward and let, let us go through their life with a magnifying glass and point out, okay, well you did this. So maybe we should take your kids. Mm -hmm. You're not above the law. You're just escaping it. Oh, exactly. And they should also be educated in parental alienation and these tactics and what to say, what not to say. I took the Erasing Family film and showed it at one of our um, required trainings because we're required to have training um, throughout the year. And I took the film in and we promoted it and we got some people to show up. But they almost was like, well, this doesn't have anything to do with us. And I'm like, yes, it does. I'm watching your foster parents, what C the people that CPS chooses. Now, there's a lot of people that think that foster parents often molest children or whatever. Foster parents also alienate their children, their, their foster care children, against their own parents. I've seen it myself. Oh, I, I believe it. This is why this future generation and uh, this nation is going to be so screwed up. It's not 1952 anymore. <laughs> no, and there was an order of respect and, and there, there was a lot. I mean, of course we evolve and of course we change and we have technology at our hands right now. And most of our, you know, most of our youth, younger adults have been raised with an electronic piece attached to them either the phone the tv 
there, you know, they've always had some kind of electronic access to the internet. And too much information is often just too much information. There's a lot of good that the internet brings us, no doubt. I'm not discounting that. But when it's not monitored or governed, or if we're just out there spewing life all over the place, what I call it puking, you know, mm -hmm. we're puking our emotions everywhere right now. You know, somebody said this, that hurt my feelings, so I'm going to go blast them. And that's just perpetuating problems all over the place. And our children are learning this pattern of behavior that it's okay. Well, you know, when, when was that appropriate 20 years ago? Now I'm not saying that we should all go back to being quiet and not speaking, but with this much information available to us, why are we not using this to educate people? Why are we not using this to increase the, um, we, we need to increase or, or what's a better word, remove the stigma of mental health. Mm -hmm. We need people to seek mental health because when you're going and you're talking about mental health on a level that is not a medical necessity, if we're talking through our emotions, we're learning how to deal with conflicts, we're learning how to reflect in and fix our inner child so that when we're out there as an adult, we're actually acting as an adult and not a spoiled, rotten little kid that didn't get what they, want, get what they wanted. And I'm not calling everybody a spoiled, rotten little kid. I'm just saying we react. We're reacting instead of responding. Right. <clears throat> In fact, when I was interviewing attorney Brian Mayer out of California, he was talking about there should be mental health services in place for everybody. It should be something it. that we want to do. Like, I need to go to the chiropractor. My back hurts. I need to go to talk to my, you can call it whatever you want. We can change it. You don't have to call it a therapist if you don't want to call it a therapist. You can call it a counselor. You can call it my coach. You can call it whatever you want, but when my emotions are hurt, hurt, I should be able to go somewhere to fix my emotion, to help me deal with it, to help me process it, to help me put it into a perspective and learn from it so that next time something like that happens, because one of the things that my children taught me, I say this all the time, is that offense is taken, never given. So if you took offense to something that I said, that's something that you have to deal with because I didn't intend to offend you. And we think that everybody owes us this um, explanation on why you hurt my feelings. That's because we grew up without dealing with these emotions appropriately. Pardon that. Mm -hmm. we, we grew up dealing with these emotions um, inappropriately. So that's what we're doing now. We are just out of control. We're, we're reacting instead of responding. We're not communicating like they used to do. You mentioned the 50s. Now, I'm not saying we need to go backwards. We need to go forwards in a better, in a healthier manner. We need right. to learn how to talk about our emotions. We, and we all have them. Every single one of us have them. And sometimes we're not addressing them. And we're just perpetuating that, that emotional trauma. And the family court system is continuing to perpetuate that trauma as well as um uh how do i want to say uh having these kids almost teaching them to be entitled as well they, if they are placed with the uh, parent that say is a narcissist well my response to that is what child out there can raise themselves without having that parental experience that parental guidance that print we all need you know this, this is why we are not adults at the age of two you know right. at the age of two we're figured out how to feed ourselves we might be figuring out how to go to the bathroom and, and take care of our, our hygiene but we're nowhere equipped to dealing with the world now there's animals out there in the animal kingdom that are full-grown adults at the age of two we are not like that we need that continuous guidance because we learn and we all learn in the same way in that developmental um, progress. And we have to go through certain things. It's that, um, what do they call that? Rite of passage, almost. Where it's a, it's a rite of learning, life skills, learning, understanding. We have to go through these processes 
and we are not even capable of making sound decisions even at the age of 18 because it's not until we're 25 years old that we fully developed our frontal lobe where we can actually make um, better um, I want to say sounder, but that's not really a good word. You know, make really good sound decisions. So we're expecting a 12-year-old to make a decision on what they think is a better parent. And that, to me, okay, I'm going to say right now, I, I do not ever want to hear the, this phrase in, in my presence, we only choose the better parent, because mm -hmm. that's a myth. Mm -hmm. To me, that's a myth. I'm bringing in the child's perspective. There is no better parent. We're all parents struggling and trying to do the best to raise a child that we don't have a manual for. We're just trying to help them grow up and hopefully we've given them everything that they need to flourish and thrive. And when all of this stuff gets in the way, we're clogging them. We're making it impossible to flourish and thrive. So we have to, we have to backpedal a little bit on this and start um, dealing with the real issues, which is the, in the inner core of each one of us. And I just, when you brought up the foster parent um, alienating the child, making these comments, uh, should they know better? How do they pick these foster parents to even? Well, I think you got to look at the what what incentivizes a foster parent to be a foster parent. And it's, to me, I'm a little concerned about that reason because it's always mm -hmm. about the money. Mm -hmm. And I am sorry, I do not think that somebody only wanting to, I, I don't want to get a job and I'm not, okay, I'm not discounting all foster parents because we have some lovely, very great foster parents out there. But there's a lot of them that aren't. And that's enough to be concerned where they're incentivized because they get that paycheck. Mm-hmm. And that's all they are, they're looking for is they can stay at home, they can raise other people's children, but they can do the very minimal, very minimal, and get that paycheck for that child anyway. So right. I don't like the system, how it's set up that way. I think even with Title IV-D, which is the child support, um, I would think that like in that film, Erasing Family, if they would just follow the Sweden model and people would just sit down and divvy up how they're going to raise their child and just stay out of the courtroom, that would be. The, that's a very good point about this model and the model one, I bet you the majority of Americans do not even know about it. So we're not educating. The only way to make a change like that is to bring that, you know, bring awareness to it. And then we'd have to force this change. Now, our system, we all know that our system's already flawed. It's so flawed that I think it's beyond repair. The only way to fix it is to wipe the slate clean and start over. Now, will that happen? Probably not. It's not going to be in our life that this is, because I really think it's just so bad that it's going to take a massive redo. A massive redo. And it would, it would literally, we'd have to like tear this whole system down and start over, which I think if, if we're looking at it in like my cybersecurity background, I, I would see a problem. Maybe I have an old server or file structure and I need to replace it. Well, do I just shut it off and then build a new one? No, because people still need to access their files, right? So mm -hmm. what we need to do is build the structure, make it so that it works when we see it working, start moving things over to the new structure. And then what I would do with my old file structure is I would create it into a read-only um, environment so that people can access the files, but they can't make changes there. They have to save it into the new system. So that's kind of what would have to happen here is we need to create the new system right now. It needs to be developed right now, side by side, standing next to our flawed system. And when it gets built into a viable um, replacement or a via, you know, an alternative that we can still build on, then we start migrating things over and we just shut, shut off the old system. Because once everything's migrated over, you, you just shut it down, dismantle it, it's gone. That's what needs to happen. It just, change needs to happen. Uh, not fast enough. 
it's not fast enough. That's the part that scares me. Is that the 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 bureaucracy makes it it makes it take so long, where you could literally do it. If someone came up with a system, and we built the system, we could have it done in a decade, and maybe even less. I'm just saying I'm being generous with time. It could be done, but we we think we have to fix this one that's broken, and I I don't think it's worth fixing the one that's broken. I think we have to start new. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I think with this film, Erasing Family and the Sweden model, and um, I had just sent you an interview I had done with a young lady. Her name was Riley. And her parents were doing the Sweden model back when she was six years old. and She's like 24 now. And how they co-parented beautifully, but they were two mature, mentally healthy adults that put the best interests of their own children first. They never went into a courtroom. They never went down to a child support conference. Nothing. They worked it out. And she... The, oh, go ahead. Oh, and she turned out very well adjusted because of them. Yeah, and something I would like to point out too, um, and I haven't seen it, so you can tell me one way or the other, but I would, bet, I would venture that if the, the parents were collaborating like that that they're they put their focus into their child they put their money into their child instead of a court system that's broken i would venture that these two parents not only did they get along but they probably had a very flourishing very successful life and probably new relationships they probably had love and joy and i constantly speak about parents need to have love and joy in their hearts when it comes to their kids and you know, I know there's pain. I'm not saying that you just have to erase the pain. You just have to set aside the pain whenever it comes to your children. And I bet that these two parents were able to have successful partners in the future, that they are successful at work, that they weren't sitting on Facebook just in turmoil. And it's painful to see parents go into a turmoil. And I, I get it. I understand it's painful. It's got to be the most painful thing. I can't imagine it but I want to see them be successful. So I say these things because I want them to be successful. I want them to have happiness. I want them to have joy. So this example of this interview that you're talking about is what I'm referring to is I bet that they are all very happy. You bet right. Yes. Yes. And uh, more of that. There, there has to be uh you know, my goal also is to talk to um, parents and talk about the Erasing Family film, spread that word, and this Sweden model, which in my, after my divorce, I was trying to do, we were doing that until a third party entered the picture. That's another thing that I, I um, talk about as well is when we have a family and the family changes and the parents are no longer together, but they're still parenting together successfully, that third party that comes in is often the alienator. Mm -hmm. And there's a, okay, so let me just preface this where there's a lot of step parents that are, that make excellent bonus parents. And to me, if you're going to be a step parent, you're not there to take away a life. You're there to give more. You're not there to take away love. You're there to give more. So you're an addition. You're the bonus. There's always going to be more love. So we have some situations where step parents are causing a child to lose one of their parents because they're territorial, because of the jealousy because they don't want that person involved in my marriage, or I don't want that person involved in my kids. So when you're, you're telling your kid, and then that affects my kids, that kind of stuff is, is selfish. It's selfish. It's, you're, you're removing love from a child out of selfishness. Right. And, uh, you know, also other family members, like the grandparents and even the bonus parents, grandparents, because when I had remarried, my new husband, her, his mother was thrilled to take on three new grandchildren. She was bragging to all her friends that she has three more grandchildren than 
her other friends did. You know, it was like the contest, who has more grandchildren? So she was happy to say that she had, you know, mine. And I was so happy that she readily accepted my kids as her grandchildren. And now they've missed out on all of that. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine, you know, a child having, they have four grandparents. There's nothing you can do to change that. A child comes into this earth having two parents. They come into this earth having four grandparents. Living or not, they still have four grandparents. They still have two separate families, two different families that came together and joined them into one. And when you have someone that says, oh, wow, I love having more grandchildren and that they're grateful to be a part of it. Now that child has six grandchildren or grandparents. Mm -hmm. They have more, not less. And that impact on that child showing how they can have more than their four grandchildren or grandparents shows them how to be accepting. And, you know, we're in a world today that's demanding acceptance without giving acceptance. And that is an oxymoron. And we can't, we can't come out of this ahead. We can't come out of this teaching our children correctly when we have all these double standards. And children are confused. I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> it's like, yeah. how are they supposed to navigate when we're relying on the very people that we have to trust the most with our lives? It's very... Uh... I don't know. I, I, I even said to Riley, I said, it's very confusing when you're six years old, 10 years old, and you're, you know, doing the drive to see each parent both ways. And then, you know, you have to drive back. And then, you know, she was saying how her, her mother had to drive back by herself, or her father had to drive back by himself, and she would worry about you know, everybody driving back by themselves, you know, it's, it's a lot for uh, a young, young child. Those are things that the children shouldn't have to be worried about. Like the, if a parent is telling them, well, I just don't want to drive home alone. You put guilt onto that kid unnecessarily. You don't do that. The right. child doesn't need to feel guilty about your problems. Right. Well, I mean, the, yeah, the, the parent wasn't saying anything to that nature to her but she was feeling it she, the, she was, was yeah she was worried she was worried about it on her Just own a little like empathic and feeling yes you know, that's a little bit of emotional intelligence so that's that's a good thing right well she has a degree in philosophy and theater so yeah. <laughs> well and i think it's inspiring to have um people think and feel that way because she's actually thinking of someone else's feelings rather than her own and probably because her parents did successfully co-parent, she learned those skills where we're not cutting people out. We're not only thinking of ourselves. You know, we, we, I hear a lot of people labeling other people as narcissists or, you know, all of these personality disorders from people that aren't qualified. They just assume because they see patterns and but we're actually teaching our children how to be that very thing when we're acting this way. Right, right. So we're raising children to be more narcissistic in today's world. And would you say when they're handed over to the unfit parent and you've got the empathetic target parent, well, you know, what happens is, is they're spending time with that uh, toxic parent. And then when the target parent gets them every other weekend, if that, or maybe once a month, there's a lot of deep programming that yes, that yes. parent has to do. Yeah. And in a normal case, I'm sure that's difficult when the parents are getting along because there's two houses, two different rules, you know, two different rooms, two different beds, everything's different in each household. But I do see there's a huge conflict here for the kids and the confusion and when children are needing to be deprogrammed it's it's because they can't process this stuff on their own and the good or i'm not going to say good the targeted parent is the one that sees that they're the ones that recognize that they see that they have that emotional intelligence to see that their child has they have to deprogram them because of that toxic 
toxic exposure that they, they're going through. The other parent is not necessarily seeing any of that, any problem with their child. And there's, that's where the problem lies, is that it's not the targeted parent's fault that they have to deprogram their children. It's that the children are being allowed to act in behaviors that are not normal or consistent with an average child. And there, you know, we got to start seeing that, and that has to be part of and considered part of the arrangement that's being made. Now, I'm a proponent of shared parenting. I want as close to equal parenting as possible. But I would also say I don't agree necessarily with the one day on, the one day off, one day on, one day off. I think that children need more time to adapt. And I would venture to say that I like the idea of one week on, one week off. That way they have some time to level out and get used to the surroundings because they just need to adapt and they need time to adapt. And once they start adapting, they understand dad's rules and then they adapt and they understand mom's rules and then they know what to expect in each location. And that also gives parents that time, that consistency. Consistency is so important for a child where you have one parent that has the child all the time except for two weekends a month there's no consistency there and the child has nothing to build with they need more consistency to build with that parent as well so the fact that um we can see that this is happening and that the children are we're spending more time undoing some of the things or resetting our rules when you have that consistency in there when they step to the door you can tell them remember we have new rules here and they instantly can turn that switch because they've adapted. Once they've adapted, it's easier for them to process and then they're not spiraling or reacting. They, a lot of these kids are just reacting to the environment. It's difficult. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what to say. I just wish parents would, uh, if they're considering divorce, you know, um, Look Write at your podcast. <laughs> Write it out. Don't do it. Yeah, so, right. Right. Just unless, uh, unless unless there's family and domestic violence involved, of course, I would never you know expect someone to ride that out. You know, sometimes there's just no alternative and they need to they need to to uh change things immediately. But right. for the most part, you know, going through a divorce is so traumatizing for everybody. And what got you to the divorce, you know, is it something that, because you're connected, if you're married or not married, you're still connected. Mm -hmm. So some of these things can be um, dealt with in different ways. I think you need to keep divorce out of the courtroom. So you can get a divorce, but it doesn't need to be the high conflict divorce. Right. There's collaborative methods of getting a divorce. You can use mediation to get a divorce. Of course, mediation would be the beginning. And then that would be somebody that really doesn't have a lot of assets or children as, as far as custody and child support involved. Collaborative would be where you do have a lot more of that. And you do have to figure out more of the schedules and you have to figure out who's going to, you know, have the children, what, what days, what weeks, whatever. So you need that collaborative law. And then the only time you'd really need to go into a courtroom is if your high conflict divorce included a business where you're having to tear things apart and you really need an attorney to help you understand. So there's different levels that people can look into. And the first thing we go to is family law. Mm -hmm. So if you were to do this in the mediation and or the collaborative law, you can work out your own custody arrangement, which is better for each parent rather than a judge trying to tell you when you should see or shouldn't see your children, the parents are the ones that know best. And if we can get the parents to work together rather right. than against each other and keep the attorneys out of, out of it, unless you have a lot more of that legal um, need where you have to you know, uh, break down businesses or break down a lot of assets or you know, do that discovery, that forensic um, accounting, because there's so much money involved. That is the only time I think you really need to step into the courtroom. Mm -hmm. The judge should all, all the judge should be needed to do 
is you go through your collaborative law, you come up with your agreements, you adhere to those agreements, you sign a contract, and then you know what you're going to do if you need to modify it. You know how to, who, to re, who to respond to if you need to make modifications. And for the most part, you put a lot of effort into building this agreement that you would stick to it for the sake of your children. And there should be maybe some, a team of people involved where you have access to mental health, you have access to account, you have access to these, this pe these people on your team to help you really create a good solid understanding of how you go forward and co-parent. And then the judge, all he has to do is sign it and then it's done. Right. Yeah, it's, if it could be that easy, I think that would be great. I, if we got rid of the family court, then we would go back to the civil court that would be handling all that divorce yeah. structure problems. Civil court would be a better way of um, tearing down, you know, breaking assets up between two people. Mm -hmm. Would definitely fall into the civil side rather than family. Now, family is here because of they're trying to find methods of supporting a child. But we already know that the support of a child doesn't go to the child. So the whole foundation, the whole purpose of family court in the these regulations and these guidelines and all of these things that CPS uses or our child support system uses, these are all based on supporting the child, but it doesn't go to the child. Mm -hmm. And if, if the money is paid out, so if one parent feeds the machine and on the other end it's supposed to go to the child, it only pops out a quarter of what it was given to, to begin with. Right. And I right. say a quarter, that's, that's just the number I just pulled out of my head. I don't know the exact, because all of, none of this is a cookie cutter. You know, anything I'm saying today, there's too many variables for each particular case. So it's not like across the board. And, and you know, we need to have that foundation though. We need to have a baseline to start with. And then the variables come into play. But the child support system is not there to support the child. And I think I, in a lot of ways, it's there to keep them off of food stamps. <laughs> right. Easy. Or, you know, uh, maybe if we remove the greed of Title 4D, yes, the yeah. parents would wake up. Well, and the say, incentive, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That the incentive of, of the whole Title 4D. We're going to use Title 4D because I'll get, and I'm, I'm pulling the number out of my head. It may not be the most current number, but. We get $4,000 for everyone that comes through here. So we're going to milk it for everyone we can get because why give back that money? I've right. seen, I've worked for the federal government before or with them and I've seen how they manage their budgets and I've seen them say, then they've, they've actually, I've been in, involved in the conversation where we're, we're coming to fiscal year, end of year and we still have money left over in the budget. We've got to go and spend it right now we have one week go spend mm -hmm. they literally bought up everything they could possibly buy because if you don't use that money you don't get it the next year so the government always monetizes what they're getting they always find ways to keep it so if they're given that money they're going to use that money even if it's not for the intended purpose even if it's just for office supplies right if, if parents really knew all this say they were going to go get a divorce and if they seriously knew everything that we're talking about and if they would sit down and watch erasing family and see that sweden model and even riley's interview they would probably not run well, into the courtroom watch. anybody in the world can watch erasing family film right now which is a film based uh, it, it's about um, exposing the family bond of, you know, of the obstruction of the family bond. It is exposing it. So erasing family is kind of like, it, you know, people look at it and they think, I don't want to watch a film on erasing family. Well, it's about erasing family and how it's happening. It's exposing that obstruction of the family bond. So anybody can watch this film for free on Tubi. So there's, you know, most of our smart TVs have Tubi. I think you can do it online as well. But if you go into TV, go to On Demand and search for Erasing Family, it'll come right up and anybody can watch this film. And the Sweden model is a great model, but so is um, in America, in the, in the States, we have um, Washington, or not Washington, 
um, Montgomery County, I think it's in Baltimore, where they actually do have court, a family court system that requires the mediation process first. And it's not a one-time meeting. Like my example, you know, when I went through mediation, it was one hour and that's it. This is an actual process that they go through. And by time that they're ready to be divorced, they've got the parents working together. And so that is a model that's already happening right here in the United States. And that's part of the film too. So we, you can see that example in there where if we could get parents working together, then they would have a much more successful experience with co-parenting. And then we need to teach parents how when you step into a new relationship, you can't allow that relationship to change or modify that agreement. That has, they're two separate things. So you come in here and yes, we may be married, but there's gotta be like, you get a, you get a um, prenuptial, Mm-hmm. The prenuptial, there needs to be a prenuptial for step parenting, for step parents, for new partners, where you can come into this marriage, but you cannot modify this agreement. You cannot make any changes to the rules. You know, this is it. You're, so you agree to this or we don't get married. Mm-hmm. I agree. That sounds good. So if you have, if you're going to blend families, there needs to be prenuptial. I would have to agree with that. That is a good. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I lived in that blended family. It was the, uh, it was horrific. I was always the one out. I was on, you know, I was the, the black sheep. I was the, the redheaded stepchild. I was the one that nobody believed. I was the one that was being abused, but nobody would believe that I was being abused. And I was rejected over and over again by the step family. The step family told us that I am not a member of the family because I am not blood. And it didn't matter if I was adopted or not. I was not part of their family. So I do not, you know, out of the gate, I do not approve or agree with blended families unless, unless these families are blending more love and not taking it. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Is there any way, um, if people want to reach you with any questions, do you welcome that or? Yeah, I, I am on Facebook. Um, mostly I have Twitter as well, but on Facebook, um, they can reach me just typing in Dawn Indria and they'll come up with both of my pages. Indria is, so it's D-A-W-N-E-N-D-R-I-A. And Twitter and Facebook have, uh, that's my profile for both of those, as well as YouTube. And I believe LinkedIn. <laughs> Good. But yeah, I'm, I'm advocating out there all the time. I'm doing different kinds of things. I'm building my own business, you know, as a, as a child of this, being raised through, with parental alienation. You know, I, I've survived severe parental alienation. I survived abduction. I've, you know, my mom abandoned me first and then she abducted me. You know, so my whole life has been this. I'm, I'm used to seeing it. I still see it. It still happens today. The enmeshment is constantly surfacing. So it's a constant battle of, of learning where my boundaries need to be now. And I've learned that. But one of the things that a lot of um, experts have said is that we're broken and we're not fixable. So I set out, and you'll see on my profile, sometimes it might be confusing to people, but I'm successful. I am a successful professional person. Mm-hmm. And yes, I was broken, but I'm not permanently broken. I've been able to rise above. I've been able to learn and work on, I've done a lot of work on my emotional um, trauma. I've done a lot of work to get where I'm at and finding my father in 2016 and then having him die two years later. I have. I've had to do grieving for one person twice in my lifetime. So my entire life, I've been grieving my father because I grieved him for 44 years until I found him. I had two years before he passed away and I'm grieving him again. So I've done so much work to be where I'm at. And so you'll see where I have my businesses online as well, because I'm showing that no, I'm not broken. I'm out there working. I'm out there moving on with my life. Right. And parents need to see 
that their children will do the same thing. They will, they will migrate towards love and happiness and success. And that's where they, I need them to go. I need them to look for joy. I need them to look for love and I need them to look for success because mm -hmm. that is what's attractive to a child. And if they don't see any of what you, you've been called, if you've shown them that you are not that person and you're full of love and joy, it wouldn't matter what anybody said about you. They would still migrate back to you. So I need parents to seek for joy and happiness and success. And their children will be more likely to come back. And not only that, the whole goal is for me, and I've said this before, Mm -hmm. is I don't want you to just reunite once. I want you to be invited over for dinner. I want you to be invited over for Sunday morning church, or I want you to be invited over for your child's baptism. I want you to be invited over because you're having a family reunion. I want you to be invited to the wedding. I want you to stand up for the wedding. I want you to walk her down the aisle. I want you to be present when your, children, your grandchildren are born. I want you to be there when your grandchildren graduate high school. I'm not talking about you just reunifying, reunifying one time. In order for that to happen, you have to seek for success. And success here means that you're doing your work and you're healing so that your child will invite you for that grandchild's graduation. Right. Right. And that's, I mean, with this Slam the Gavel podcast, I'm trying to educate and try to get everybody at least, you know, who I've, I've been interviewing we're all pretty much on the same page. So, you know, that's helpful. Yeah. So that's just all we can do is just keep talking about it and not, and not stop talking. If we stop talking about this, it, it'll just go away and get swept under the rug. Well, and that's what people want us to do, right? People want us to just stop talking about it because it's painful for them to hear it. They don't, they don't like it, but they don't understand the, the enormity of it. So when we say there's 25 million parents out there that have been erased from one of their children's or from their children's lives, let's put some numbers to that. If the average family, the average size of a family is two children, that's the average size, then you are talking about at least 50 million children out there that have not seen their parent. And is that acceptable? Let's look at it from that angle. Right. Do you have any final um, words of wisdom or, um, that you can add that would. Yeah. Um, I do. I do that children have an inalienable right to have access to both of their fit and loving parents. I had a right to know my father. I had a right to know that I had siblings. I had a right to know that I had an extended family. Nobody should have the right or the power to take that from me because it's my inalienable right. It's not my constitutional right. It was my inalienable right to have that access. And so kids need both parents. They really do. And it should not be taken away from them. And they should know that they are loved by both parents. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. You've got kids with anxiety and stomach ulcers, and they don't need to be going through that at a young oh, yeah. age. Well, and I, I, one of the speeches I gave was I talked about my, you know, your body keeps the score. And there's somebody that wrote a book about that. And it's absolutely true where, you know, I had digestive issues and that's because my gut instinct was suppressed. I wasn't allowed to use it. I have thyroid issues because my voice was suppressed. I wasn't allowed to use it. So your body keeps the score and we're damaging our children in more than, more than just the, you know, mental way. We're physically, physically harming them. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And um, I guess, uh, do you have any other further comments? It's like, it's like, I can't let go of this podcast, but. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I could probably keep going too. Yeah, we could. <laughs> There's so well, much. Maybe we should do a couple more of them. <laughs> I, th I think what we probably will. We'll probably end up doing more. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So this is a good opener. And maybe we can like talk about specific subjects or something in the future. So, 
Thank you so much for coming on to my podcast, Slam the Gavel, which is a podcast to help the public understand what goes on in family courtrooms that in turn perpetuate parental alienation. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough. And please join us again with Dawn for another exciting episode. Thank you, Dawn. Thank you. I appreciate being here. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.